0: Welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. I'm your host, Rick Alexander. This is episode eight in season one. If you're digging this show, it would mean the world to me if you would share it with people that you think might uh, find interest in it or that it might be helpful to or just to even share it with your social media following. Or you could head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Also, if you are interested in working with me, I have a few one-on-one client spots open. I also have an, the second cohort of my men's group, The Modern Man's Call, where we use mythology and adventure to understand masculine psychology and really break down and wrestle with what does it mean to show up as a fully embodied masculine presence in the world today and to who I was here to be. So if you are a man and you want to check out that course, head to the link in this bio, rickalexander.com. And also for both sexes, you can check it out. You can check out my one-on-one coaching. All right. Thanks. Without further ado, on to the show. Hey friends welcome back to the show uh before i get into today's episode i felt the need to make something abundantly clear i've talked about in the past how this isn't dogma this show isn't even about dogma it's actually about exploration it's actually a vehicle for my own curiosity because as I've delved more and more into the psychological space, which was originally really for the idea of personal development, I became aware that there were all of these other ideas and mysteries about being itself, which were really interesting to me. And I started to notice that If you study the psyche, you can start to understand commonalities. You can start to see things that show up in multiple different cultures, different religious traditions. Not that they're all saying the same thing. I think I need to be clear about that because I don't think that that's the case at all. But I do think that by asking the questions, how is it that humans can make meaning out of their experience, we can start to get closer to some commonalities and some universal principles and truths. And I'm really interested in those. Now, also, because I don't believe they're saying the same thing, I see immense value in exploring people that are saying the opposite of what it is that I think. And so this show, as a vehicle for my own curiosity, is going to have me trying to explain, right? I'm obviously trying to explain because I'm talking But having me explore these topics that are so far from the way that I was raised and my own personal psychological makeup that sometimes there's going to be things, you might hear it and you're like, well, I don't think that that's true. And what I would say is, well, then it's not true. Just let it go, right? If it resonates, then that's the kind of thing you want to lean into and ask yourself deeper questions about. But as a host, as somebody who is trying to explore the outer reaches of my own ability to comprehend my own consciousness, which is a little bit what I'll talk about today, it's likely that I'm going to require a bit of grace in that process from the listener end, just to know that this is a this show is a way that I'm going to explore things. Like last week, I'm exploring these Eastern philosophies. It's really important to know they're the psychological polarity of our own existence. Like for example, in the West, when we think about the world, we tend to think about the I, the individual, the ego, and then we extrapolate outward, right? And so when we talk about ideas of God, it's like those are they're like the outer limits of their, our most bold predictions because what we know is the eye, and then we wrestle over what's way out at the ends. But in the East, it's nothing like that. In the East, Brahman, the supreme deity, God most high, the, the universal God is the only God in the east, right? So it's ultimate reality. So that's what's real. That's where they start. And then they move their way to the individual. So you understand that the way in which your mind has formed, if you're in the west, for example, has formed in tandem with religious ideas that influence the West. And so it's likely that you have, you know, the way that you view the world, the structure that you view the world is going to be representative of the structure of like the biblical stories or something along those lines. And so you'll find those ideas to be more salient, more easy to resonate with. And one of the dangers that happens when we start in the West and then we move to the East is that because we're not changing our entire psychological makeup, i.e. the paradigms in which we think in the first place, the very structure of our thought process, because those don't change, um, well, Carl Jung described it as poison. He's like, you can absolutely poison yourself if you move into the East without understanding psychologically the differences in accounting for those differences. And so it can be a really painful process. So I say that to say that as I explore these ideas, and a lot of them are Eastern, a lot of them are Western, I'm pretty much interested in exploring both, but there's going to be some, some things that fall apart, some things that we don't quite understand, and I do my best, but I still am going to require grace. Okay, enough on that. Um, oh, actually not enough on that. One quick thing, one thing you might notice from the West to the East, I've been trying to really understand the, psycho- the psychological transition that takes place from the West to the East. You know, you might think of the shadow of the West as the inability to be with the body, which is very fascinating because the deity in the West, Jesus, is an incarnation of God. And so what that means is that God decided to take an embodied form And so perhaps there's something important about us going through the body to understand God, actually being in our human life. I would say that that lesson is being presented. But you see things, for example, I'm not sure if you've heard of Gnosticism. The Gnostics were a a heretical form of Christianity that popped up in the first couple centuries, about 200 AD, I believe. And what they asserted, not Gnostics, gnosis, means knowledge. I think I've talked about this on here before. But essentially what they proposed is actually you just need the right knowledge of God, of your own divine spark, and you can escape the material reality because material reality is a trap. And so in that idea is the idea that your life is somewhat of a mistake. And I don't buy that. I I just don't. And what's interesting is Christianity rightly refuted the Gnostics, but I think the Gnostics won in ways that we're not 100% aware of because it's something like our shadow in the West to deny the body, which is why we all feel so safe in the intellect. And that's also a reason why you could hear a lot of these ideas. They feel safe from a distance, but if you were to start embodying them, they'd cause a really great upheaval in your life. And so it's, it's safer for us to stay in the intellect. And so one thing that happens when people whose mind has been formed by Western thought and tradition go over to the East is that they have a tendency to skip the body. But it's interesting because if you really try to understand Buddhism and even Hindu philosophy, the two are interlinked in some ways depending on the sect. But there's a great respect and reverence for the body and and the consciousness actually goes through the body. So one thing you see, like I, I think this is one of the shadows of the New Age movement is that there's a lot of escaping into light and love and not a lot of owning of the shadow. Now that's a generalization. I'm not saying that for all people. I'm just saying these are things to be aware of as we start to flirt with thought processes that are really foreign to ours because we might miss something without knowing that we're missing something. So we all need grace because we're gonna keep missing things and we're human and we're finite, we're of the nature to make mistakes. So interestingly enough, what I really, really love and what I want to talk about today a little bit, and you've heard me talk about, talk circles around this a little bit, is studies of consciousness. Because studies of consciousness don't require either, right? It's almost like a secular way of trying to come up with the same things. But I told you, we don't at all understand how consciousness came about. like We don't, the origin of it. That's why all of these are just theories, right? I want to introduce a book today called "Power vs Force." I talked about it in the first episode or two, by David Hawkins. He's an MD and a PhD, and I don't—he—he created a system for understanding the development of consciousness based on, on a numerical value. So it starts at zero, actually starts at 20, and goes up to 1,000. 1,000 being enlightened consciousness. 1,000 being like the original teachings of Jesus or the original teachings of the Buddha. Both of those were uh, above 700 into the thousands range. Now, I don't think that it's correct. Like I don't think it's exactly correct, and I don't think that that's the point. And I want to see if I can be clear on this. What he asserts is that the universe is governed by certain energetic fields, like attractor fields. And if you come into alignment with those fields, that's like you coming into alignment with the things that created the universe. It's like coming into alignment with truth. And if you come into alignment with truth, or the more in alignment with truth that you are the more power you're going to have. Not you as a finite I, but rather that you align yourself with power principles, and you're going to be as powerful as you are in alignment with truth. And he contrasts that with force. Force is the idea that we just make something happen, we try to force something to happen on our own accord. And what happens when we act out of force, rather than being in alignment with universal principles, which is truth, it creates an opponent process, and what that means is the force in which we shove something to shove something to make it happen. It's going to it's going to backfire on us. It's going to come back on us the same way. Not unlike an understanding, uh, some understandings of karma and something like that. Right. The idea being that when you force something, you create an opponent process, and you can see this at multiple levels of analysis. What I mean by that is. If you smoke weed, for example, like this is anything addictive, right? You force yourself into a higher state of being, like you force yourself, that's why they call it getting high, right? But you force yourself to be more happy or something like that. The addictive, what happens is when you come down from that experience, it creates an opponent process. So you'll be inversely as low and so you'll seek that product, that that thing again that made you high. That's why it becomes addictive because you get caught in this opponent process Process processing system, right, based on force. But you can also imagine that in your life, like you know a relationship's not working, right, there are something there's something that's not aligned, maybe you're stepping away from your own truth, you're stepping away from truth in that relationship, but you force it because you really want a relationship, and you can feel what's happening when you force it. It's not like you're getting the relationship you want, you're just getting the result of forcing something that isn't supposed to be. And so when I say that, it doesn't really matter if he's correct in like a technical perspective, and I'll talk about the science a little bit. But actually, I think what's more important is that we start to grasp the concepts to start giving us a frame of reference for understanding how reality works, why we do certain things and it creates an opponent process, why we do why we do act out of love or do other things. And it creates a world that we actually want to be a part of, right? Like starting to understand why consciousness matters in the first place, in building a frame of reference for it, I see it as something like a middle ground rather than East versus West, rather that it doesn't matter. This is what, when we study consciousness, we're studying the phenomena of being human itself. And so it's a bit of like a universal framework or language that we can use to contextualize and understand our own experiences. So I'm going to link the book up in the show notes if you want to buy it. It is a good read. It's, it's over 300 pages, but it's not, it's, At the beginning, it's really science-heavy, and he's talking about his process of discovering how they discovered these attractor patterns. But then as it gets into it, it really starts to unlay a lot of, uh, yeah, like I would say, universal truth, things that are true no matter what you call God or, you know, what, what it is, right? If you're going to react out of shame, for example, you're going to vibrate at a certain frequency, and that's just true whether you... Are feeling shame because the religion that you grew up with institutionalized and made shame a virtue and handed it to you or whether you feel shame because your parents weren't necessarily in touch with their own emotions and so that was the quickest thing that they could grab to make you do what they wanted you to do. In any case you living out of shame is going to cause a certain experience of reality right and so this is what we're talking about when we talk about conscious. So what they use is strength. And so he uses this method of essentially looking at what is it, what kind of words, what kind of frequencies, what kind of vibrations make somebody get stronger, like even physically stronger. They actually use a test to test physical strength and resilience. And then they they essentially use that same test on different words and they say what things are making you go stronger and what things are making you go weaker. And so they've built what they call a map of consciousness. As I was saying, it starts at 20 and goes all the way up to a thousand. At the very bottom, the lowest sort of consciousness that you can have is shame. And at the very top, they have enlightenment right and it's hard to even know what enlightenment means and the the emotion they use to describe it is ineffable right so it's literally beyond grasp it's something like if you even come around people like that you it raises your vibration just for having been around them this is one of the reasons why it can be really helpful even if you don't have a religious you know, tradition or, or belief system, you know, if, if you're going through something hard, and, like somebody dies, you know, it can be helpful to go talk to somebody who's really holy, who's truly doing the work and truly aligning themselves with power, with truth, with light, with love. And it feels better when you're around that person. There's some like residual resonance and that process is actually called a trainment. In the east what you see is people will find different gurus and they'll go sit in the presence of these gurus and part of the reason being that you ask them like why are you doing that? Something we don't necessarily get in the west because our model of divinity is different with the the clergy system. But I don't want to get into all that today. But you you see these people that are spending their whole lives. They leave their lives behind and they sit in the presence of this guru day after day. And you might ask, like, why would they be doing that? It feels so ridiculous for us in the West, maybe. But it's actually called the process of a trainment, which is if you're in the presence of somebody with a higher vibrational frequency, they, they attract you toward them. The truth pulls you up toward them. And you know this because if you get around people that are the opposite of that, like get around people that are, you don't even have to take the bottom shame, right? Just go up further to the scale to apathy, right? What happens when you're around really apathetic people or go up even higher to fear, which is like at the 100 in their map of consciousness. So what happens when you're living and making decisions out of fear and you're viewing the world by giving fear the driver's seat in your life? Well, what happens is that it starts to pull you downward. And that's why when you watch the media for hours on end and they're spewing constant fear at you, you feel worse about yourself. It's the process of a trainment, entrainment. And so why that matters is because the most compassionate thing you could do is have a standard for what you allow to be and penetrate and have effect on your conscious experience. Because one of the ideas that I want to present in this whole podcast is the idea that your consciousness is all that, it's what you have. It's what you have to navigate this world. It cannot be taken from you. This is why, like St. John of the Cross, for example, who wrote... Uh, the dark night of the soul. And we misappropriate that language all the time and use it to talk about depression and stuff. But for him, it was the process of growing closer to God and the difficulty of that. And he was actually in prison, right? This is why Gandhi can change the world from in prison. From prison. I'll actually talk about Gandhi specifically because he's attract. he's He's aligning himself with power principles that are far bigger than he is. He has the humility to get there. And you feel it when you're around those people. I talked about the Buddha myth. There's an interesting thing that happens at the end of the Buddha myth, where after he has this experience, he's going back into town. He's walking down the road, and these couple of people come upon him, and they're like, are you a god? And so you can just imagine, right, it's myth, but imagine what kind of state you have to be in for that to be a reasonable question that somebody asks you when they come upon you and he's like no i'm not god and they ask him a few other things like are you this are you an angel are you a messenger he's like no i'm not and they're like, what are you and he's like i am awake and he uh, you know if they if you take the power verse force scale his teachings all vibrate and at the thousand level of frequency. And there's only been a couple people ever on this earth that have ever vibrated at a thousand on this power versus force scale. And what's interesting too is it only takes a couple, right? If you think about the revolution that Christ caused around the world, right? Imagine this person is executed as a common criminal and then becomes the deity of the the state which executed him like what kind of power is that you don't have to i mean don't even believe in the phenomenology of it but like what kind of power what the hell just happened how is that how is it that that's the religion that i'm brought up in two thousand years later right these things are real like power is real there are real energy attractors in the world and just because we can't see them doesn't necessarily mean that we aren't going to be having to act within them, that our lives aren't going to be formed by them. It just depends what kind of life we want because the more you align yourself with power, the more ease you're going to feel in your life because the less you're actually doing, you see? When you're at the bottom, when you're living in shame, guilt, apathy, fear, desire, anger, right? The, there's always things that you have to do. You're always being victimized by your environment, right? You don't have your anger. It's actually that your anger has you. You're gripped by these things and your reactions to people are actually one in the same with your emotion in this place, right? Like. He made me angry. Nobody can make you angry if you if you really understood who you were and what you were doing. People make you angry because you're you're vibrating at a lower frequency and you're conflating the emotion with somebody else. And so it's like you've handed your well being over to the world in those places. So you're constantly meeting friction. This is what I meant when I said last week that a lack of consciousness is its own punishment because you're constantly having to you're having to do things on your own you're having to try to overcome things on your own when you're living from a place of fear which i said was like the 100 scale for for power versus force you your life is constantly closing in on you, right? Because there's always more that you have to be more afraid of. And so you might say that these words like shame, guilt, apathy, fear, grief, it's like, what are you honoring? What are you serving? What are you worshiping? What are, what are you motivated by? Because all of that is co- is going to be projected into your conscious experience. You're gonna constantly find in the world what it is that you actually are. And that, that's why I use the metaphor of higher consciousness, like climbing up in the tree, being able to see more, being aware of more, and having more more understanding of why certain things are happening and you're, you're not as victimized by your life. And that's the beauty of, again, I think having a framework for consciousness in the first place. Like we could have a, a conversation about whether or not the – Numbers that they're using in this book actually correlate to energy fields in the world, and we could dismiss that or debate that. But having a framework in the first place is actually really helpful. You know, having a framework and like studying it and thinking about it will raise your consciousness in their system by like 35 points. So if you buy this book and read through it, it'll raise your consciousness by about 35 points in their system. And that's actually helpful to know because one of the things that they posit is that generationally consciousness is only raised by about five points per generation. Now, this is why as an individual, your consciousness is almost always more than the culture that you were born into. I one time heard, and I think this is really interesting to reflect on, that you have an ethical responsibility. You have a responsibility to be more ethical than your parents' generation because that is how the world gets better. And you can see this, right? You can see if you read history through the level of consciousness, you can see us becoming aware of more you know a couple of things happen right you see us pulling really high teachings down to our own consciousness because i told you like the teachings of christ at a thousand that are like as the highest truth you could possibly know if you actually understood what truth was on this life but we use it as a way to instill fear in people or you see that some religions make shame essentially a virtue right so they're taking this thing in their Teaching it and dragging it down to the consciousness level at which they are. And so it's likely that if you were raised in a religious tradition, part of why that religion doesn't work for you anymore is because you have to go out and you have to foster your own conscious experience of the world because it is higher likely than the people that raised you or the people that instilled certain things in you. This isn't always the case, but the way that culture raises is by individuals actually having the courage to raise it, actually having the courage to foster their own conscious experience of the world. you know. And then it tends to be that people will go back to the church later on. I read a really interesting study one time, and it looked at reasons why people leave church and why they go back to church in a variety of different religious traditions. And they tend to leave church To redeem themselves, and they tend to return to church to redeem the religion or to redeem the church. And so, what you see there is exactly what I'm saying. It's like, as an individual, your consciousness. That's why when you're you're hearing things in society, and you're like, "What the? How is it that nobody's even thinking about you know whatever it is this thing that you're thinking about? How are you not prioritizing the?" Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is like, how are we not prioritizing the complexity of every individual situation? Why are we tying them all together? And it's like, well, my consciousness, right, especially because this is the work that I do and seek, is is got to be higher than the conversation of the resonance that you're seeing on social media. So there's a huge mismatch. And if you try to live your life by conventional thought, it will feel really uncomfortable to you. It will feel like friction. It will feel like you're having a hard time fitting yourself into this. So you have to honor what doesn't fit. I've done a podcast on that in the past. Honor what doesn't fit in an individual box, whatever box you might be in, whether you're at school or in religion. Honor what doesn't fit because it's it's often inviting you to become more, even if it's painful. Because that's one thing that I want to say is like, as you progress up this level of this map of consciousness, it's not without pain, you know, like it, it's actually quite painful to let go of the life that you lived. Here's an, here's an example. Pride is at 175 and courage is at 200. Now what Hawkins presents is the idea that the enough people have to be over 200, not everybody, not all of society, because Right, like I said, it only takes a few people vibrating really high to really change the vibration of the world, and you saw that. You see that with religious teachers, if they're really, really vibrating that high. And what's interesting is, pride is one seventy-five, courage is two hundred. I've often said in my own content that courage is a, you know, it sounds like a great ideal, but it's actually a non-negotiable aspect of being itself, right? Because If you don't have courage, like really, really, if you don't have enough courage to face the obstacles in your life, then you're going to find that your life is constantly presenting you with obstacles. And so you're not able to manifest your potential in the world because things are constantly going to thwart your ability to do so. So courage, I think it is non-negotiable, right? Under courage is pride. Now, pride is interesting, right? Because pride, for example, pride and self. My pride in my country, in when I joined the military, brought me from this resonant place of fear and desire all the way up to 175. So it, it feels really good, especially if we've if we were raised at a lower frequency, which many of us are. Pride is a very interesting thing because it's very enticing, because it pulls you up, it raises your consciousness, gives you something to live for that's deeper than fear, for example. That's one of the the uh, the things that makes pride so potent but they also say pride goeth before the fall right so what happens is if you don't let go of that level of consciousness you get stuck and you'll end up falling back down to fear grief apathy guilt and shame or whatever right and so there's actually a pain that takes place I have all this immense pride in my country and in what I do in my military career. So pride brings me up. It gives me a reason to live that's deeper than fear. So I start looking at the world differently. I'm vibrating higher myself. And eventually I realize that my values are calling me to something higher. They're calling me to a higher way of being. They're calling me to love, for example. Now, I have to understand the role that pride played in my life and also realize that if that's the thing that I serve it's going to limit my existence going forward. So, you grieve a little bit of what you leave behind. You grieve the old life and you move on. So, it's like a it's a bit of an uncomfortable process, but it's really important to understand. Gandhi when they use their process and it's really cool because as I said, this frame of reference, whether it's right or not, is just cool because they apply it to different music and they apply it to different um, words, like vocabulary, the way that you talk to yourself, right? This all matters because it's all, these are all symptoms Based on this, you know, if we're thinking about consciousness, the words you use, the way you talk to yourself, the way you treat people, the music you listen to, the, the what you listen to to entertain yourself are all symptoms of your current level of consciousness. Because what happens is if you were to, and actually, I felt this right, so consciousness rises. So you are vibrating at a higher frequency, but you have old patterns, like maybe you beat yourself up or you call yourself a piece of shit and you do it and it doesn't have the same resonance it used to have. Like there's a feeling in you like that's not true. I said that out of pattern, but it's not true. It doesn't resonate anymore because it's not vibrating at the level at which you're vibrating. And I'd say that that's how we use the word resonant. That's why truth, what's really true, we, we say it's resonant. It has a resonance. you feel truth in your body. It's a vibrational frequency, right? And, And if you align yourself with it, it will set you free, right? That's what, that's so much of what this book is actually saying and actually alluding to throughout the many different ways it does. So Gandhi, they had at 760, which is interesting. The British Empire, they had at 175, So you see what happens when power comes up against force is that force gets wrecked. That's why you don't need everybody to be vibrating higher. That's why I said the thing that you have is consciousness. The thing that you can offer to the world is consciousness, is becoming more conscious. Regardless of your belief system, what belief systems do, religions do, I think really well, hopefully, is they give you a path to walk toward higher consciousness the pitfalls is are that they often get you stuck right because like i said if if i'm teaching you even if the teach original teaching was a thousand but your your life the way that you view the world the way that you've been raised is through a lens of fear you have to be careful of the unknown you have to be scared of that which you don't understand then it's still going to pull you up, but it's you're going to pull it down too. So it's going to be much more difficult. So if you're going to read scripture, for example, this was some great advice I got from a spiritual mentor and is in alignment with, with this study of consciousness. If you're going to read scripture, for example, rather than read it through your frame of reference, you first have to understand that you are loved more than you could possibly imagine. And what that means is that there's nothing that you could do. There is nothing that you could do that would keep you from being loved. You are loved beyond what you even want to be loved. Start there and then read scripture. Start with that, f- that frame of reference if you're going to read scripture and see what that does for you. Realize that there's a love so boundless, a peace that per- surpasses all understanding, to use scriptural language, and that that's what's calling to you, and that's why you're reading this scripture. Not that you're the outcast. Not that you are living out of this place of fear. And then it will pull you upward. It will it will act on you by entrainment. And remember how I said like certain spiritual teachings have to dissolve. Like they 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 dissolve just if you take them seriously enough. An example of this would be like Christ's teaching, love your enemies. It's like okay, well if you take that teaching seriously, it dissolves the category of enemy. Do you see? So if you give yourself over to this, it changes the world in which you live in completely. And that's the thing that happens with consciousness, right? And as I said, you doing that is enough to offset all kinds of people that are vibrating at really low frequencies in the world. That's why Gandhi was able to defeat the entire British empire. I mean, this is, think about what we're talking about right now. The empire, like this is, they have bases all over the world, biggest empire in the world at the time. And Gandhi vibrates at a frequency that is so much higher than them that they can put him in jail and still lose, you know, still lose ultimately. Force gets crushed by power. Uh, What's fake, what's not real, gets crushed by what's real. And so the process of consciousness expansion is coming into alignment with truth and understanding what's ultimately real, right? It is the, it's the path toward God. If you think about God as ultimate reality, what's ultimately real, you coming into alignment with what's ultimately real is going to increase your consciousness, You're going to be a more powerful being, not as an I, not as an individual I, but as a result of what you are aligning yourself with. And so one way that I use this map of consciousness is I actually just print it out and look at it. And when I notice certain thought processes that I'm like spiraling down or I'm repeating a lot or I'm in a place where I feel um, victimized by life in some way, I actually just start studying it and I'm like, hmm, what kind of words am I using? What am I feeling? Because they use like emotional levels and stuff. So I'm like, oh, am I feeling despair? Am I feeling regret? Because if I am, it's likely that I'm vibrating really low right now. And so it's just a way of creating awareness around the way that you are navigating the world. I'm going to read a section uh, of chapter 21 from this book. He said, various aspects of consciousness have been the subject of traditional philosophy and the expressions of consciousness as mind or emotion have been the subjects of the clinical sciences. But the nature of consciousness itself has never been clinically studied in any comprehensive sense. In medicine, the presumption, I would say now that that's not as correct because there's a lot of people that are trying to take a crack at it. In medicine, the presumption that consciousness is no more than a function of the brain is reflected in such statements as the patient regained consciousness. This routine narrow depiction has assumed that consciousness is a mundane physical phenomenon, a self-evident priority for experience about which nothing more need to be said. So remember the materialistic view of consciousness I said, I think it was last episode or a couple back, that it's actually a product of physicality, of neurons interacting with each other? That's what he's alluding to there. The one recurrent focus of interest on the subject has been speculation regarding what happens to man con- man's consciousness at death. Does the power of life and awareness arise from a physical basis? Does the body sustain conscious life or is it the other way around? The power of life sustains the body. This is a bit more of an Eastern thought. That's what I was trying to get through at the beginning of this episode when I say they start with Brahman. They start with God and then they work themselves down to them. So they are an emanation or a manifestation of God. And there's no question about that, right? That's built into the, the very substructure of their psychological reality. Because the way the question is asked will be defined by the questioner's preconception of causality, the level of the questioner will predetermine the nature of the answer. Right. The, another way you could say that is the level of the person who gives the teaching is going to predetermine the consciousness at which the teaching is received. And I think that if more clergy understood that, more spiritual teachers understood that, it would just be a way to step back and be like, oh, OK, how am I understanding this message? Am I pulling this message down? Am I am I not honoring the the actual love that motivated this message in the first place? It's something worth asking yourself anyway. Each questioner will therefore derive an answer representative of what is actually merely their own level of consciousness. So what he's saying is that where you stand is affecting what you see. Remember the idea of fear and courage? It's like if, if you're seeing the world as fear, you know, as obstacles, as things to be afraid of and to avoid, you're going to constantly see those. But if you are innately courageous then what you're going to see in the world is opportunity. It's the same world, but the consciousness at which you are embodying is really going to make a difference of how it's viewed. To the materialistic scientists, the question will appear nonsensical and a fruitless exercise in tautology. Tautology is like, that's, it's like uh, the level of philosophy that's obvious to us. So for example, if you are standing in the rain and you say it's raining, that's a tautology. To those at the other pole, the enlightened, the question will seem comical and the limited perception it reveals will elicit compassion. The common man might take on faith the authority of either or of conventional religious teachings to answer the question. Once I had this awakening experience where I realized that we are spiritual beings going through a temporary physical human experience— that was it, I couldn't go back, right? And all the thought of acting as if that, I still think we need to honor that viewpoint, like I wouldn't say that's stupid, I'm just saying for me personally, once your consciousness level sees something, reaches something, you're there, you know? That's where you're going to be. And what happens is, sometimes we see a certain consciousness level, but we retreat from it. Like we taste love for a moment, it scares us and we retreat from it. But here's what's interesting and what you might wanna know about the human experience. You can't go backwards. There is no going backwards. What happens is you leave a piece of you up there. You leave a piece of you in that experiment, in that experience, and you won't ever feel whole until you go back up there because there's part of you that will not go backwards. All discussions of life, death, and the final fate of consciousness must be necessarily must necessarily reflect differences of context. Descartes implies that consciousness is only aware of itself when it it assumes form, but the enlightened throughout history have disagreed, customarily stating that consciousness is beyond form and is, indeed, the very omnipotent matrix out of which form arises. Modern physicists concur. Without consciousness, there would be nothing to experience form. It could also be said that form itself, as a product of perception with no independent existence, is thus transitory and limited, whereas consciousness is all-encompassing and unlimited. How could that which is transitory, with a clear beginning and ending, create that which is formless, all-encompassing and omnipresent?" However, if we see that the notion of limitation itself is merely a product of perception with no intrinsic reality, then the riddle solves itself. Form becomes an expression of the formless. Ontologically, consciousness is an aspect of isness and beingness and is implicit in man's definition of himself as human. Humanness is only one expression of beingness. Now, what is happening there, what he's saying is what the religious texts have been telling us for thousands of years, right? This is the idea of God creating the world. God is consciousness, right? God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and is the ultimate um, expression of consciousness as such. And we are emanations of that consciousness. And so that's the idea that he's being presented. And if you're interested in that, argument whether you buy it or not I would just say to give the book a read and and see what it does for you see what it moves in you and follow that because that's where your truth is you know if you listen to me to give you an answer it might hold you down might hold you for a while but what you actually want to do is listen to me for what wakes up something in you because that's where your energy is going that's where your psyche is trying to lead you and start pulling on those threads he has this really amazing thing where he breaks down different, the different energy levels. So I'm going to end, since I've been talking about courage, with reading his description of courage. At the 200 level, power really first appears. When we test subjects at all the energy levels below 200, we find, as can be readily verified, that they all go weak. Everyone goes strong in response to the life-supportive fields above 200. This is the critical level that distinguishes the positive and negative influences of life. At the level of courage, an attainment of true power occurs. Therefore, it is also the level of empowerment. This is the zone of exploration, accomplishment, fortitude, and determination. At the lower levels, the world is seen as hopeless, sad, frightening, or frustrating. But at the level of courage, life is seen to be exciting, challenging, and stimulating. Courage implies the willingness to try new things and deal with the vicissitudes of life. At this level of empowerment, one is able to cope with and effectively handle the opportunities of life. At 200, for instance, there is the energy to learn new job skills. Growth and education become attainable goals. There is the capacity to face fears or character defects and to grow despite them. Anxiety also does not cripple endeavors as it would at the lower levels of evolution. Obstacles that defeat people whose consciousness is below 200 act as stimulants to those who have evolved into the first level of true power. This is what I mean, the difference in how you're reacting to the world. People at this level put back into the world as much energy as they take. At lower levels, populations as well as individuals drain energy from society without reciprocating. Because accomplishments result in positive feedback, self-reward and esteem become progressively self-reinforcing. This is where productivity begins. The collective level of consciousness of mankind remained at 190 for many centuries, and curiously only jumped to its current level of 204 within the last decade. And this was written back in the 90s, I believe. So the thing that's interesting is the consciousness level at which you are at is going to it acts as a self-in reinforcing, self-fulfilling type of prophecy. And what I mean by that is, right? Fear begets more fear. Courage begets more opportunity. And so, whatever, wherever you're standing, wherever you're viewing the world, it can't be faked. Right? You have to actually do the work to raise your consciousness level, but I would also say that it's going to become easier after you do the initial work to get above that level of courage so that you can start viewing the world as opportunities. And you'll notice in certain places you do, you vibrate higher, and in certain places you're lower, and that's where your work is. You want to embody a higher level of consciousness. And if you do... The rewards, the, the sense of meaning and purpose in your life will be self-evident to you. You don't get to know what it's like to live from love when you're sitting in a place of shame, right? This is why we have to do our work. This is why psychotherapy, coaching, all of those things are so valuable because they can help get us out of those pits that, we're, that are so hard to get out of on our own. Again, I would say that's the value of the religious path, as long as the people that are helping you and guiding you along that path are of the consciousness level at which they too are aligned with power in the trek upward, the trek toward spirit, the trek toward God, the trek toward realizing all of the things that we think are friction are actually stimulants in moving us toward a more cohesive and expansive existence. And I want to say this final thing. You know, we, we're using the language of higher and lower because David Hawkins uses that in his research. He he Right? He uses the, n- the numerical scale, which uses higher. And you often hear of people using the word higher in relation to consciousness because it does make sense with the metaphor. But I, I want to say that I like something like the idea of, of consciousness growing more complex. Like it's pretty obvious to me that if you study history, right, our consciousness, something about consciousness itself, is really interested in becoming more complex and becoming more aware of not just itself, right? not just the agent, but the arena in which the agent is acting. So not just the self, but also the cosmos that the the self is inhabiting. And... It's obvious that we have developed a whole bunch of different paths in order to complexify that consciousness. So I like that because you might think about it rather than like climbing up, more like concentric circles moving outward. So you become aware of more, you integrate more of what's around you. And so just wanted to add that critique on here because I think that when we're talking about consciousness, it's so easy to... I don't know, slip into some holier-than-thou type language, especially if you're using higher and lower. And so I just wanted to offer that alternative. But in any way, I think it's clear that our mission here, the thing that we can do for ourselves, the thing that we can do that cannot be taken away from us, that no force can ever really take control of, is the opportunity to become more conscious, to become a more conscious human being. That's, that's a gift that has been given to us that cannot be taken.